0: from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Watersco was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, at petevans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're gonna love it. Dr. Andrew Wakefield is an academic gastroenterologist. He received his medical degree from St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, London in 1981. He qualified as Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1985 and trained as a gastrointestinal surgeon with a particular interest in inflammatory bowel disease. He was awarded a Wellcome Trust Travelling Fellowship to study small intestinal transplantation in Toronto. He was made a Fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists in the UK in 2001, and Dr. Wakefield has published over 140 original scientific papers, reviews, and book chapters. To find out more about Dr. Andrew Wakefield, please visit That's vaxedthemovie.com. That's V A X E D T H E M O V I E.com. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, brother?
1: I am great, dude. Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Thanks for allowing us to uh, connect like this. I, um, I'm always amazed at uh, my good fortune of being able to meet fascinating people that are doing really amazing, amazing work in the world. And I would love to be able to start off by first congratulating you for everything that you've done. And and also, if I could come over there and give you a hug mate, I would because i know I know it can 't have been easy these these last this, these last few years putting yourself in the position that you 've chosen to put yourself in and i 'd love to start off with the exact reason is why you why Dr. Andrew Wakefield, how the fuck did you get into that position to be the voice for so many people and how did you have the balls and the tenacity and the determination and the strength and the courage to put yourself out there?
1: Right. Yeah, this is a question I, I've dealt with many times, but it it's it comes down to one: your where you come from in the first place. And I come from a you know six generations of doctors, and we were raised in medicine to practice in a particular way, and that is where the patient comes first and foremost. There's no ambiguity, no equivocation. That is it. And above all other things, all other considerations, the well-being of the patient. And so I was presented with a situation in 1995 where I was confronted by a lot of children who were very, very, very badly injured. They had not only regressed into severe autism, having been perfectly normal, but had done so after their parents had taken them for a vaccine. And they weren't anti-vaccine, they followed the doctor's orders when to get their child vaccinated, and this is what happened. And so they were merely reporting to me what happened. They also, they came to me as a gastroenterologist because they had, their children had severe gastrointestinal issues that were unresolved, and the doctors that they'd been to see said, that's just part of autism, get over it, forget about them, put them in a home and move on. It was an extraordinary situation. It was quite clear to me as a clinician that these children were sick. They were failing to thrive. They were in pain. They'd lost the ability to articulate their pain, but they were banging their head against the wall. They were beating themselves up. They were adopting odd positions in order to get rid of the pain. And so I was confronted with, one, looking at their gastrointestinal issues and showing that they indeed had a novel inflammatory bowel disease which was amenable to treatment, so they could be helped. Historically, this was a dead-end disease. couldn't help these kids. Yes, you could. And that insight came from the parents. And the second thing was, was this a vaccine that was doing it? Now, I didn't know, but I knew that we had an absolute moral and prof- professional obligation to look to the best of our ability, to rule it in or rule it out. Now, when that happened, The medical school was terribly excited about the discovery of this new condition, but they were not so enthusiastic about the vaccine issue. In fact, some of my colleagues from paediatric gastroenterology came to me and said, Andy, we can't, as paediatricians, be seen to question the safety of MMR vaccine, and that didn't make any sense to me. That wasn't a medical position. It wasn't a scientific position. It It was a public relations exercise. It's, you know, how will our colleagues perceive us at the Royal College if we Behave in this way. If we question this vaccine. That didn't make any sense. So I was told by the dean at that stage, Professor Ari Zuckerman, that if I continued this vaccine safety research, it would not be good for my career. It was an overt threat, and I'm probably a bit like you, Peter. As much that that made me want to do it twice as hard, and I continued the work. Uh, I came to this crossroads, which was: Do I work for public health and the pharmaceutical industry? or do I work for these patients? And I work with patients, and that was it. That wasn't a difficult choice. It wasn't a brave choice. It wasn't a choice at all. It was just what had to be done. And yes, over the years, there have been difficulties. Because the problem is that when you offend the pharmaceutical company, profiteering, and when you offend public health policy, there's no price you will not pay for doing that. And so as with many many, many doctors and scientists in the past, including McBride, famous Australian, who identified the link between the drug thalidomide taken by mothers during pregnancy and phocomelia babies being born without arms and legs. Having made that, he was trapped in the medical literature for a long period of time until it was proven that he was right. So this is just standard practice. It is if you... Offend us if you threaten us, we will come after you and destroy you, and that's just something I'm afraid that you have to deal with. But the alternative is saying to that mother and that child, I'm terribly sorry, I know you're right, but I'm going to ask you to turn around and walk out of the room because it's not good for my career. That for me would have been much more difficult. So that was the career I chose, and I it's now one of. Education. I love educating, I love passing on what I know. And the other thing is that over the years, because of the position I've taken, people have come to me from government and from industry and said, We've done something very, very bad, and I can no longer live with that. And I want to give you the evidence. And the evidence. And so I've got a lot of whistleblower stories, so I thought, Okay, now is the time to turn those stories into movies. And so now I'm a filmmaker and enjoying every
0: movie. I want to ask you about that, and thank you so much for having the strength and the and the courage to do that and to, to work for the people instead of for the companies, is that you just mentioned that you're a filmmaker now. Where I, w- where I would love to get is, there seems to be in society at the moment, people like to pigeonhole people into boxes. You're this So you can never be that. Whereas I have the belief that we're multifaceted, amazing beings of creativity, Where wherever our intuition or our creative expression urges us or ignites the flame in us to pursue, we should be able to do that if we're not doing any harm. So talk to me about the different hats or or the different identities or the different creative expressions that you have
1: Thank you, yeah, no, it, it, it's it's, and I agree with you entirely. Please do not, anyone, do not listen to the negative comments from other people about what you shouldn't do and why you shouldn't do it. Forget it. If you want to do it, if you have a burning passion to do that, you can do anything you like. So get on and do it. And you get better as you do it, and we did that. I This is my third film that we just made. The first film was we didn't even start out that way. We started out making a reality TV series for the Sky Network in Europe. And that was taking children with autism who had this undiagnosed medical problem, getting that diagnosed, treating them and healing them and the family. Not curing autism, but making a vast difference to the well-being of that child and consequently the family because autism is pervasive. Within a family, it, can, it wreaks out. I mean, the divorce rate is high alcoholism is high, siblings aren't cared for because you spend your life caring for the child with autism. It's a nightmare. But if you can heal that child with autism, you can make a huge difference to the well-being of the family. So we were making this before, during, and after scenario. and We were called in to see a child in Chicago. He was 17, mute, vaccine-injured, in four-point locked restraints in Chicago hospital, and on 28 psychotropic medications one after the other each one to offset the side effects of the last it was It was appalling. It was a, a litany of the failure of medicine to understand, let alone treat autism properly. And so we got him out of there. We took him to New York. We got him investigated and treated for his inflammatory bowel disease. We took him back to Chicago. And tragically, he had nowhere to live. His mother was estranged. She was driving around Chicago with him and with his Godmother and staying in bed and breakfast. And, and the trouble for this boy is that he was big, strong, and every time he heard a siren, they were coming to take him away and they were coming to lock him up, to chain him up, to drug him, and he would have a meltdown. He would destroy the hotel room and they'd be thrown out. So they were getting more and more tired and more and more desperate. We were next called in to see him when he'd fallen back into the hands of the child psychiatrist. Things had gone horribly wrong. They'd taken him off his drugs for his bowel disease, and they put him back on Ativan. He could become violent, and he was in four-point doctor's strengths in the pediatric intensive care unit at Lutheran Hospital. We went there to help him. His mother was beyond exhaustion by this point, and we were—it was very honest, very worrying. We went to try and find somewhere to get this boy taken out, make him safe. And halfway through the week. His insurance fund. So they took his restraints off, took out his IV, and put him out on the street. A week later, he was dead. His mother had entered into a murder-suicide pact with him, had stabbed him, and tried to take her own life. As got and that was a tragic story. And we decided we had all this footage. We had all this. We were going to tell this story. Because on the face of it, this was just a crazy mother who hated her child. No, it was quite the opposite. It was a mother. Who loved their child and could not bear to witness the suffering of had reached the limit of her endurance. And so that story had to be told, and it's very, very interesting. And I'll just finish on this, please. That four years later, she was still in prison, waiting to be committed, and she was going to be charged with aggravated murder, which means no parole during prison for life. And her lawyer called me just before Christmas, two thousand seventeen, and said, "I." received a call a few weeks ago from the state's prosecutor who was responsible for sending her to jail life And he said, I understand a film has been made about this. And so I sent him my DVD, my copy of the movie, and he called me back a week later and he said, we have reviewed this movie. We can no longer prosecute this case in the same way she will be released from prison next week. Now. This is not, by any manner of means, an endorsement of harming children before. all. But it is the power of film to change people's minds. Without that film, it would have just been that story of the crazy mother who beat her child. When it was actually something completely different, and the film was called "Who Killed Alex Sporlakis?" The, the irony, really, in the title was, or implicit in the title was the notion that. It wasn't the mother at all, but the system had actually been responsible for the death of this child. But that was the first time in American legal history that a movie had had that had committed their life sentence. And so I realized then the power of film. And went on to make Vax, which if who killed Alex for helped one child, one mother, then Vax helped millions. Facts change everything. And it did so largely because of a fatal error made by our adversaries, and that was to censor it from Tribeca Film Festival. When that happened and when Robert De Niro went on to the national news networks the following week saying we shouldn't have done that, everybody should see this film, make up their own mind, it went viral worldwide. It became the most talked about media story in the world. And everybody wanted to see the film that they were not allowed to see. You cannot tell people what they can see and think and hear and say. So when that happened, that went everywhere. And the impact was, enormous. You know, and so I felt soon after that the greatest contribution I could, the most important contribution I could make was to, to make another movie.
0: What have you learned through this process about yourself?
1: Hi, right, sir. Um, but I had a lot to learn about filmmaking. uh, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And and you do learn. If you apply yourself and you're humble and you listen to the counsel of of more experienced people, you can learn a huge amount. But some of the most I learned was from a wonderful, wonderful, incredibly successful screenwriter called Terry Rossio, who was a great friend of mine. Now he's become the... Godfather of his twin boys and Terry wrote Aladdin and he wrote the Shrek series and he wrote the Pirates of the Caribbean series and Deja Vu and it goes on and on and on. He's one of the most successful screenwriters in Hollywood and we became great friends because he optioned my book and I learned so much every time I sat down with that man. It was like a it was like a master class in screenwriting and uh, even though I should have learned much more, I learned a great deal from him. So it's been such a fascinating process. And I've done directing courses, and they're terrifying. You know, I worked in the operating theater, and I worked in medicine, but then you go into direct actors in front of all of these other directors and all these other actors looking at you doing this. And it's terrifying, but it's the most fun. It is so much fun. So, yeah, filmmaking has been a fascinating process.
0: I don't want to talk about myself too much, but uh, I've been a chef for 30 years, and I went into this as The last 20 years in front of the camera as a celebrity chef, as they call us. And then I decided that once I changed my diet, my family and I changed our diet to a paleo or keto approach. There's a gap in the market for a new type of cooking show. And I pitched and pitched and pitched, and nobody wanted to do it. They said, You'll never be able to get it off the ground. I was like, Okay, we'll just do it ourselves, which then led into The Magic Pill, which is about food. And that went onto Netflix, and millions of people saw that. And like you, I think it helped a lot of people open their eyes to the power of certain things that we can we can use as tools for health. And I'm looking at you, Andrew, and you look bloody healthy, brother. You look really, really, really good. And I, and I want to understand as a gastroenterologist, and I've had the great pleasure of meeting Professor Alessio Fasano and cooking him dinner once upon a time, and he's, he's regarded as one of the, the kings in that world, is that... Many people over the years have come to me and said, the gastroenterologist doesn't believe there's a link between what they eat and how the body functions. A disease. I'm like, you might want to find another gastroenterologist that can put the link together that food food affects the gut.
1: (laughs) You know, it's terrifying. Yeah, it's true as well.
0: I'm looking at you and you look bloody healthy and I wonder what you have learnt about medicine since you took this step to help these families, what if, what, what's changed in your world, your diet, your understanding?
1: Everything. Everything. Because you're absolutely right. In your medical training, you don't learn about the value of nutrition, about the, the value of dietary intervention. You learn about it in the context, for example, of a gluten-free diet in a setting of disease. But that's it. You don't – I mean, it's astonishing to me that you, you don't. And so everything that I've learned, about the value of nutrition and protecting my own health. And when I, mean, I played rugby for years, I played sport every day I did, but that was, I wasn't doing it against a healthy background. I wasn't looking after myself in the way that I needed to. And so that has really changed since I moved out of medicine and realized that medicine really has very few answers to some of the fundamental questions we have. And the perspective we should be taking is much more one of looking at preserving health, maintaining health, rather than treating endpoints of disease that occur because everything's gone wrong because we didn't put all of these things in place. So for me, it's been an extraordinary learning experience, and it's all occurred after the age of 50. That's really quite young. and I should have known this all along, but that wasn't part of even training as a gastroenterologist. And it's come about because of the many people I've met along the way and the insights that I've gained from parents. Because parents have had to go on this quest. One of the things that they came to us with was this notion that a gluten-casein-free diet could make a big impact to the lives of these children. Something about those peptides in the gut of children with autism was neurotoxic. We didn't know what. Was it that they were... Like opioid peptides, like they were they were like morphine, or were they causing an immune reaction in the gut? We didn't know. It could have been both. But nonetheless, when these children were put on a diet, it took them off gluten and casein and soy, then their neurological functioning improved dramatically, and that gut-brain connection was born. It was quite clear that these two things were intimately linked. And And it went on and on and on, and then nutritional supplementation and alteration of the microbiome. And so the whole field of the gut talking to the brain rather than the brain talking to the gut really emerged. And it did so because of parental insights. And it did so because they had to go on that journey to discover what was best for their child, what was going to help their child, because medicine had absolutely nothing to offer treatment of neurodevelopmental disorders like autism: electrocution blaming the mother putting them on psychotropic medications that drove them crazy that's all medicine had to offer and it was catastrophic and so that natural approach the mother's intuitive approach and I can't I can't praise that too much. Was not only beneficial to their children, but incredibly instructive to me as an individual, both in terms of how I recommended treatments for other people and how I looked after
0: my own. I'm fascinated about your six generations of family medicine work. And I've recently had the good pleasure of interviewing Robert Kennedy Jr. a couple of times. And there's certain people out in the world. Also, Mickey Willis, who created the movie Plandemic. I interviewed him last week. And I'm fascinated about these people like yourself, Robert Kennedy Jr., Mickey, these individuals that break out of the system for the risk of their career, the risk of their lives, potentially. I'm, I'm not sure whether you've had any threats, but I have had threats personally of death, of of violence, of you name it. It comes into my inbox. And I'm always intrigued about how do people like yourself get to that position to have that, that maybe strength isn't the right word, but just the the determination to go, you know what, fuck it. I need to do this. And, and I'll use myself as an example. I mean, I have free will, but I am compelled to do what I'm doing at the present time. I'm compelled to do it. I don't think I could live with myself and be in harmony or, or in, in peace if I just stuck my head in the sand, so to speak, even though it would probably be a lot easier and a lot more lucrative <laughs> and a lot more gentler for my family. So was it your family's influence? Was it because you were born on this certain day at this certain time and the stars were aligned? <laughs> like, tell me, what is the combination for people to stand up? And, and the reason why I'm getting to this is because, I feel like at, the, at this particular point in time in history, so many people uh, feel like they're powerless. They feel confused and not sure of their own purpose and how did they stand up for their truth. So I don't know how you can distill that down, but give it a shot,
1: <laughs> please. I probably can't, Pete, but I'm delighted. I'm absolutely delighted that you've taken the position you've taken. And I watched with interest as you said what you said and the attacks came and the attacks came and the attacks came and I thought, "How's Pete going to stand up to this? And you have, and I am so pleased. And you ask why people do it, and it's somewhat rhetorical, because of course you're in exactly the same position, but you know, intuitively, it's the right thing to do. You know that if you walk away from it, you have to live with that decision which impacts, not you, our lives largely, yeah, where, where we've got, someone said the other day, less of the runway left than we had before. Lines and, and um, but our children, our grandchildren—that's the legacy we leave to them. If we do not do our best for them, then we will not go easy into that. Good we will not go them. So people do what they do because it is the right thing to do. A lot of people don't do that, and. They don't understand us and so we don't understand them. Our brains simply work in different ways. I mean, I could conjure up it's a moral imperative, it's the really professional. Actually, it you just know it's the right thing to do. And the other thing that then makes it much easier, made it much easier for me when things were really bad, is I was down in West Texas, looking up at night sky and millions of stars billions of stars and the enormity of the universe, infinite quality of this extraordinary universe. And I realized that it wasn't about me at all. The universe was indifferent. In anyway, it was supportive, I'm not quite sure, but this was not a bad thing. I mean sure it's dressed up to look like it's about you. The threats are against you, the insults are against you but it's not about you at all. It's a ruthless pragmatism. You are challenging us, you are threatening our profitability. you are threatening our belief systems, so we're going to destroy them. don't know you, but we're going to destroy it because we can And so once you realize that it's not about you, it's about something much more important. It's about the future of the world, the future of generations of children then once that occurs to you and you realize that, it becomes very, very much easier to do. And the other thing that I find utterly compelling, which is something that I've tried to bring out in the new movie, is that it, it could be seen in one way. It could have been seen as the, uh, when a product or an industry is taken outside of the constraints of the free market, allowed to run a market and cause havoc, habit, which it is. But it's about something much more important, something much closer to the kind of thing that you and I are thinking about on a regular basis, and that is maternal intuition, the power of maternal intuition. And this comes down to that notion that you raised about people feeling powers. Mothers in particular have within them this extraordinary intuitive power about the well-being of their baby. The well being of their children. And that power has been largely usurped by the man in the white coat. He doesn't want you to believe in yourself. But believe me, this isn't an emotional argument, this is a survival imperative. It's the reason we're here on this earth now. And that is because of the extraordinary power of maternal intuition. And when mothers individually and collectively wake up to that idea again, they realize that. That little voice inside them is there for a very, very good reason. And when husbands realize that they, too, have this to some extent, nothing like mothers, but they trust the fact that their wives, their lovers, their, the mothers of their children have this say this extraordinary power, then when we defer to that internal authority, and not to that external authority, not to Tony Fauci standing there telling us we've got to wear masks for the rest of them, the rest of time or bill gates telling us we've got to be vaccinated with his vaccines or the world will never get back more. when we defer to the internal world particularly collectively we can change everything and that's what we'll do
0: mm, beautifully said my friend so we're in 2020 we're six months into one of the strangest years Maybe it's not the strangest year for you, but for, for many people, it'll be the strangest year so far. for I've got to
1: tell you, it's not <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and sometimes we need to laugh every day. There's another, there's another revelation or there's another absurdity or insanity that comes out through the, through the talking heads, through the media, or as you've just mentioned. And did you know this was coming a few years ago or five years ago? Did you, could you predict that something like this was traveling down from the top to where we are right now. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at Pete. HLC.com backslash Pete. That's Pete HLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective.com backslash Pete.
1: A couple of things to, to set the scene for this. Some years ago I was working with an ex-member of MI5. And his job at MI5 was as an Uber hack. He was like that guy in Jurassic Park with flat fingers, you know, who tries to sort of sabotage the entire act. Uh, and doesn't do so well in the end. And he, his job was to get into anybody's system anywhere, at any time, anywhere in the world. And he was extraordinary at it. And he came to us one day. He then left Mi5 at that stage. And he said, "I was just doing what I do on on my computer, and I discovered that this this virus, this SARS virus, that's out broken out in 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 China, the Far east, and is spreading." across the world, it originated in a bioweapons facility in central China that was damaged or destroyed by an earthquake. And he then got a call from his minder, because once they leave MI5, everyone has a minder checking that they're not hacking. And he said, you will just, you will forget what you've just heard and never repeat. So that was very, very interesting. And he had no reason to tell me that. Did I have any proof that it was true? No, but it was extremely interesting because there you have a prologue, if you like, for what has happened now, 10 years or more later, that a new coronavirus has emerged on the scene out of a bioweapons facility in China. Could I have predicted this? People talked and I read books about the coming plague and the coming this, and I thought, actually, guys, you know what? The plague is here. The plague is here in a pandemic of neurodevelopmental disorders in children, we face a situation where, when I was at medical school, one in 10,000 children had autism. We weren't taught about it to now. By 2032, one in two children in America will. Those are the CDC's numbers. That is the epidemic. That's the pandemic because it's worldwide. So the idea that this was going to be somehow worse than that was an interesting proposition. And it turned out to be very different. And here's the problem, and you know that what we're told and what the reality are two completely different, two completely different things, and we will never know the truth because the numbers are manipulated, the death statistics, the case statistics, the even labeling a case as a positive antibody test or a positive PCR test in an asymptomatic patient, no. A case in medicine is someone who has the symptoms of a disease and a diagnosis of that disease. That's a case. Not an asymptomatic person who's perfectly healthy who just happens to test positive for disease. If that were the case, I would be positive for measles because I have measles antibodies from my exposure as a child. So this whole case step, everything is utter nonsense. All definitions have gone out the window and they've gone out the window in order to push the vaccine agenda, to the exclusion of everything else, uh, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, whatever it might be, anything that might work that gets in the way of a vaccine and vaccine-only agenda has got to be dismissed, has got to be thrown out. So that's what we're left with now, is a terrified public, because fear is really the marketing tool that they've used throughout time to instill fear into people to abide by their victim. And so we are now in a situation and Australia really worries me because I would have thought by their nature the Australians would be far more critical and independent and challenging of this dogma, but they've allowed themselves, and I hope I'm wrong, but seem to have allowed themselves to be locked down in the most peconial way. And if you look at Sweden, the disease is gone. The mortality is down to less than one per day. They didn't have lockdown. They didn't have masks. They didn't have social distancing. Their economy is going to survive because they developed natural herd immunity. Those who got the disease and could withstand it did so. Those who didn't uh, were protected from the disease and the mortality was almost exclusively in the elderly. And now it's gone. The disease is, for all intents and purposes, Gone in Sweden, they have dealt with it. the rest of the world. Most of the rest of the world has yet to deal with it. So, we're not dealing with anything like the disorder that we were presented with in the first place. Sure, it has a mortality, sure, it's an infectious agent. Um, I have no doubts about that. But have we gone about handling this in the right way? Absolutely not. It has been a and I don't blame the leadership in this country, because the leaders are as good as the experts. And this episode will be remembered as the death of experts, the death of people like Tony Fanchi who got up
0: there and told us lot. And that's really sad. Has it gone on too far that, as you said, the leaders are stuck? Or have is there the potential that they've already done... You know, and not to be a conspiracy theorist, but like in Australia, our prime minister has done a deal with a vaccine manufacturer that's already paid out a billion dollars in fines and payments for mishandling of of their products.
1: Our governments are doing business with, with convicted felons. All of the manufacturers of vaccines in the United States for children on the recommended schedule, all of them are convicted fel- felons. Our governments are doing business with these people and we are meant to trust them. This is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. I do believe that there is, I don't believe we've gone too far. And I believe, and I don't know what perception is in Australia, but I'll tell you this, and I'm an observer on American politics. I am someone who came to this this country without an affiliation to a Democrat or, or a Republican or a independent ticket. But I can tell you this, that every time there has been a mandatory vaccination bill pushed in a state, passed in a state, and a Democrat who has done that, And the resistance has come, the health freedom narrative has come from the Republicans. It just happens that that is a fact, a matter of fact. It divides exclusively along political lines. And I can tell you this, that if the Democrats take the White House, if the Democrats get into power in November, we will have a federal vaccine mandate, not just for COVID-19, but for all vaccines on the recommended CDC schedule. And what happens in America spreads to the rest of the world. That, unfortunately, is a thing. And so bad policy here, bad laws, bad vaccines, bad companies have a global impact. And that's why this film, 1986, the Act is so important because it shows people that American legislation, which took liability away from the drug companies, which they don't have, for any COVID-19 vaccine, if you take that liability away, you create catastrophe. And that is exactly where we are now. And the stage is set for them to clean up with these vaccines, but they won't do that. That won't happen. It won't happen because people will rise up and protest. People will refuse. And if you look at the numbers, Pete, of people who are refusing, it's now above 50%, 56% of people in the UK and the US are saying no to your vaccine. Thank you very much. And that is, they've miscalculated. They've overcalled this, they've overreached and they've made a fatal error. And it's our job to ram that fatal error home.
0: In saying all of that, Andrew, I mean, you've been in researching this and it's become part of your life for quite some time. When you detach yourself from it and and have a a broader view, like when you're out in the Texas, <laughs> looking up at the stars, if you were looking from from space looking back at Earth at this particular point in time, is this COVID lockdown? Is this what we've needed? Like, do you feel it in your heart that this is what has been necessary? And I know there's been a lot of suicides. I know there's been a lot of people out of work and destitute and, and, and the list goes on and on. So I, I don't want to belittle what is happening to people because they are suffering. But if we can detach ourselves from that for a minute and look at this from a, from a historical point of view, what's your perception on this? What's, what's your belief that why this is happening?
1: Can some good come from this disaster situation? You know, I walk around um, coconut grove down here in South Florida, and wonderful, profitable, successful enterprises, shops, things that people have put their life savings into. They were they were proud of gone. And and so yes, there is a great deal of tragedy. Is there a silver lining? Is there something that we can take from this? Yes, there is. And that is the extraordinary overreach of the system in an effort to control the problem in an effort to say we can bend you to our will and when we frighten you enough we can force you to do a number of things a sequence of things culminating in mandatory vaccination whether it's been tested for safety appropriately or not we will have you lining up to be vaccinated and you will bend to our will whether it's this vaccine or any other vaccine and this agenda is being driven by the vaccine manufacturers. Because what the 1986 bill did was to make them so powerful, so wealthy, that they could buy governments and policy and doctors and hospitals and medical science and medical journals and the media worldwide. And that may appear to make them inviolable. But what I say to people, Pete, is this, that in the movie, in Vax, we had a scene which we cut. And it was just that it, there was too much material. And it was a scene of Red Square on May Day at the height of the Soviet Empire. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of troops marching in perfect step. There were missiles, there were tanks, there were armoured cars. The Politburo was standing there saluting. And it was in It could never fail. It could never fall. It was too powerful. And then it is. And it's gone in the blinking of an evolutionary eye, it's gone. You talk to young people about it, they never heard. So, a few people can make a huge difference that these tyrannies can be overthrown. There was never gonna be a black prime minister, uh, president of South Africa, and then there was. So the world can change, and the world will change if we choose to shape it to our design, not to the design of those who would profit from it. So I hold out greatly. I am dismayed by the level of damage, the level of injury incurred. But I am also of the opinion that if there is a silver lining, it is that it has woken a huge body of people up to this idea. And if they get educated now, if they go forward, they watch 1986 The Act, if they watch other films, they get engaged at this stage, if they learn, if they understand, then they will be prepared to go forward in the right way. And do the kinds of things that perhaps you and I have been doing, position that you and I have been taking for a long time. And I therefore have great hope for mankind. We will come through this. And as a consequence, we will be in a much stronger position to determine our own destiny, particularly with respect to health freedom, health care, and the choice about what goes into our bodies and the bodies of our children.
0: I agree. Over the years since you have made these films, you were one of the few doctors that stood out. How many now have joined uh, joined in sharing the message? And is it growing exponentially or is it just trickling in? Tell me, tell me what you're witnessing. It's growing
1: hugely for several reasons. One is that other scientists around the world, if you're Schoenfelds, for example, in Israel, the French team looking at aluminum aluminium. people are coming to vaccine injury from a whole range of perspectives, whether it's from the mercury or the aluminum or the other neurotoxins or whether it's um, contaminating viruses, they're saying, hold on, there is a problem. And when they're being rebutted, when they're losing their grants or their jobs or having their papers rechanted, they're saying, well, that can won't for that. You know, it's happening to me, and yet i know never done, You know, this kind of thing. So people are joining. The other people who are joining are people who have clinically, in their practices, witnessed progression of their own patients, pediatricians, sometimes, sadly, their own children. And others who just by into conscience have decided that they can no longer tolerate this. One doctor the other day in Virginia said to this Virginia state legislature, in giving up vaccination, I have lost seven hundred thousand dollars per annum in income. But I've done it because I can no longer continue away and speculate. So many, many people are coming to this. And what happened, what tends to happen is that it has a mass action that the more come, the more come, the more come. People feel that it's somehow now, whether it's respectable or not, it's safe enough to come out and declare that. Out. So that is what is happening, and it's unstoppable. And immediately they're labeled as anti-vaxxers, Whether they've been pro vaxx all their lives and merely pointing out some scientific anomaly associated with the vaccine, they're labelled as anti-vaccines. And suddenly they think, hmm, we know what's going on. So the other side are making some huge errors, and may they continue to make
0: Now, talking about errors, so recently in Victoria, in Australia, they were calling out the, I think it was the Victorian Health, was calling out for healthy subjects to come in for clinical trials on COVID-19 vaccines, and they were paying them as well. I think it was $400 or $700 to be a test subject. And I, I shared that. And my question to you is, they're calling on healthy subjects, yet at the same time, the politicians and the health experts are saying, when a COVID-19 vaccine comes out, we're going to be giving it to the most vulnerable first. Now, I ask the simple question, if the healthy people have side effects, What's going to happen to the vulnerable or the people with comorbidities or the unhealthy people, if I can be so blunt, when they have that vaccine that has been rushed through? Because you and I know that potential side effects may come up 10, 20, 30 years down the track if if they don't come up very, very soon after having a vaccine. So what's going to be the repercussions for our most vulnerable when they have a vaccine, rushed, that hasn't been tested for long-term efficacy?
1: Well, I think what we see from the trials, particularly, I think it was the Moderna trial, is that the high-dose vaccine, which is the one that's going to be necessary for elderly people in particular, that vulnerable group because they do not produce such a robust immune response. They need the higher-dose vaccine. They are the ones with a really alarmingly high rate of moderate to severe adverse reactions. And they're, of course, going to be the people least able to tolerate that adverse reaction. So it's all very well doing your initial trial in healthy individuals long as there's fully informed consent, etc., and an adequate follow-up. Would I participate in those trials? Absolutely not. But you cannot extrapolate data from healthy individuals to those, quite rightly as you point out, uh, who are not healthy or at highest risk. So it does become a problem, and God forbid it should ever be given to pregnant women or any situation. The problem then comes, as you raise, the issue that you raise is the long-term problem. And this came about with the the dengue fever vaccine in where you saw that children who were given this Frankenstein vaccine, it was a yellow fever vaccine plus dengue fever hybridized into this monster that had never been given before. But when children were given that vaccine, they were fine, they developed antibodies, they appeared to develop an immune response. They were fine until they then encountered wild dengue virus. When they did that, they became really, really sick and then they died. That was not an anticipated side effect, although there were clues to it in the clinical trials, which the drug companies were told ignored, so nobody passed through. So here you have a situation where these children now who have received, and there were many, many hundreds of thousands of them who received that vaccine are now set up for life to a serious adverse reaction to a common virus in that part of the world when they encounter it. They are a loaded gun. And so that adverse reaction, that injury, that death could strike at any time. That's really very, very right. And it goes to this issue you cannot, foreshorten, you cannot rush vaccine safety studies because if you do, you will make mistakes. And the history of all of this is contained in 1986 where we show that with the 1976 swine flu epidemic that never was, the vaccine was brushed to market The insurance companies refused to indemnify the companies because it had been rough to market. It was never safe. It was never safety tested. The CDC lied about it. And then people were paralyzed and killed by a vaccine that was never needed because it wasn't swine first place. A litany of mistakes. And unless we understand the history and the mistakes that have been made, we will go blindly into these experiences, these experiments, this testing without knowing the risk, the true risk. So people need to get educated.
0: I need to ask you a probably the most controversial question, and it's to do with Donald Trump. And I remember a few years ago, quite a few years ago, when because I've been working with a foundation here in Australia called Mind Foundation, a wonderful group of people that have set up a an information and education system for helping parents with children on this autism spectrum. And when I heard about autism and diet and what you talked about earlier, it made a lot of sense because a lot of people that took gluten and dairy or casein and soy, as you mentioned, out of their diets, the children improved sometimes remarkably, and sometimes it was a small improvement. And during all of that I heard this rumor or these things that was Donald Trump has called out vaccines as a link to autism. And then I heard that when he got into power that he brought in Robert Kennedy Jr as one of his advisors and then that was the last I'd heard of it. And I'm watching very closely the words that are coming out of that man's mouth every time he talks about therapeutics and vaccines and and I'm not sure whether you're open to talk about that whether you have any perspective on that but i don't know i, I want to hand it over to you and, <laughs> and, and perhaps you can't say anything
1: you know I, can be, I know I can i can and i will i feel very strongly about it let me tell you my experience and i met donald trump in a very small meeting just before the election in florida and we had a roundtable meeting with him and we talked about autism and vaccines and i've Met with and spoken to a large number of American politicians. And for the most part, they are looking at their watches or their cell phones and they cannot get out of the room and the conversation quickly. They do not care. They simply don't. Care. Donald Trump sat there and for 58 minutes we talked about little else but vaccines and autism. He said, You don't need to tell me vaccines called autism. I know it. And I'm going to do something about it. And you know what? I believe. It was not a first-term issue because they threw so much at Russia, all of that gun they threw at him, that they, he had little time to do anything else. And it would have been so controversial, so controversial, to take on the pharmaceutical industry in the, in the first term in that way and this golden cup of vaccination. Moreover, in bringing in Bobby as a... Uh, head of a Vaccine Safety Commission would have really been a big call because it would have meant that your head of the CDC, head of the FDA, head of the National Institutes of Health were redundant. In fact, their expert opinions were redundant. Now, my opinion is that they largely are because they are so entrenched in the vaccine narrative that they're not able to be objective and in their large part, they're also corrupt. But I think it was a tough call. But he has done things since which have drawn a line in the sand with the pharmaceutical companies. And I do believe very strongly that in the second term, he will act in the interests of health freedom to protect Americans from mandatory vaccination, including mandatory COVID vaccination. And you will notice that every time he is questioned on the issue of vaccination, he talks about therapeutics. My preference is for a therapeutic. My preference is for a treatment. That's what he's been saying. So I remain hopeful I know that on the other side of the equation, the Democrats will institute, as they have stated, in Healthy People 2020, they will have a mandatory vaccination policy across the entire country. and There will be no excuses, no exceptions. So I am firmly in the camp of re-electing Donald Trump because this is my issue. If by 2032, one in two children has autism, then you either have autism or you care for someone with autism. There is no economy, there's no standing army, there's no police force, there's nothing. Your foreign policy doesn't matter a because your country is in the toilet. And the cost of these caring for these children is two on one, night and day. It's exorbitantly expensive. It's tragic. It should never happen. And it will destroy this country. So the plague is here. We don't deal with it right that. And this is my issue. This is my single issue, because health freedom, to me, is power, And everything else can follow into it. But if we do not resolve that issue, then there is going to be nothing left to worry about.
0: Why is it that you say that if the Democrats do win this election, that they will go through with the mandatory vaccines? They made it clear.
1: They made it clear in their policy statement, in their documents from uh, Healthy People 2020, in conjunction with the World Health Organization, the UN, that they, in bidding for the White House in 2016, that was their policy vaccination. Vaccination. And it's a legacy of, of it's interesting, uh, you know, you, why would the Democrats, who perhaps historically might have been on the side of their freedom, and the Republicans on the side of, of the big corporation? Why this switch? Why this uh, interesting conundrum? And I think in large part, Bobby makes this point, is that the funding for the campaign of the the Democrats comes largely from the pharmaceutical government. They do not get money from oil and gas. They do not get money from the automotive industry. They don't get money from the gun lobby and from from the arms manufacturers. And therefore, they rely upon the... Pharmaceutical industry for a large part of their campaign. And a lot of the legislation is driven by sponsorship from the pharmaceutical companies. So I think they've got this unholy alliance with a powerful company that is going to drive, is going to craft the law that forces mandatory vaccination. So that, I'm afraid, is what we're on
0: for. And last question before we leave, brother. And this is a science fiction question that uh, I shared a post a couple of days ago because I saw Bill Gates had released a a small little video of the Grim Reaper with mosquitoes flying all over it. I don't know whether you saw it on on the website. And I know that you are in Florida, I believe it is, or or that area. What I've heard, and I I don't know whether I can – whether it's truth or not, is that there's 750 million genetically modified mosquitoes about to be released into Florida to combat a disease. Now, have you heard of anything like that? And what if that was to happen, what could be the ramifications of that? Or is it total bullshit?
1: Well, no, no, it's true. And these experiments have been going on for many years. So you genetically modify the mosquito in some way, and one of one of the ways in which you might do it is to make it unable to reproduce. They're sterile. They mate with other mosquitoes in competition with the native mosquito, and they don't reproduce. And so the population dies out. And this, oh, it's all a wonderful idea, wonderful notion, brilliant. Except that scientists have a habit of doing things because they can. They sit in the laboratory and they create this thing and they rarely consider the consequences. Ecological consequences for the world. So while there may be an initial benefit, what happens when you offend nature? Nature will exact a very, very high price. But it won't do so. But it will do so in the long term. So what might be the consequence of if this is what they're doing? I don't. I don't know the annihilation of a mosquito population that fed birds and bats and. Insects and snakes and visit. what happens to the biodiversity? What happens? There is always a consequence of altering the ecosystem, and sometimes it's catastrophic, and sometimes you don't anticipate because a mosquito is just an irritating little bastard that needs to be spotted. So I hope they thought it through, but I don't very
0: much. Andrew, mate, I just want to tell you that I love you. I am so grateful that you have been a man on a mission, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I, I see, I see a lot of love in you, brother. And I'm just grateful for this connection. And I'm looking forward to the coming years. And I, I see you as an expert in so many areas, an expert in life and what it means to. Walk with courage, and if more people could muster what you have, I think we would have. And if it's inside every one of us, and I think we're going to create a more beautiful world. So thank you for drawing that line in the sand.
1: Thank you very much. Um, please send my love to your family, and I would love to say that one day I may even see you in Australia, but I doubt that I would be allowed in this So let's see. <laughs> but
0: thank you very much. Cheers, brother. Love you. Bye. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans tuition savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast